But we're in the book of Titus uh, to this point in our study. Um, The letter is focused on the issue of leadership. Paul instructing Titus to appoint elders in each of the churches on the island of Crete. And the the characteristics, um, we often say qualifications, I prefer characteristics that Paul told Titus to look for in church leaders. Well, now uh, Paul will turn in the second chapter to Titus' own ministry, his actual teaching and preaching ministry and um, what he should be teaching. And he does something interesting in this second chapter that Paul doesn't always do, and that is he gives us the why. You know, we're used to in Scripture being instructed, you know, do this or don't do that, or, you know, things like that. We're not always told the why. Well, Paul is very careful in this passage to give us the why, the reasons, and I think we should take um, time to note that. So as I read the text, and we're going to do the whole second chapter because it's basically one piece. You really can't, can't divide it very sensibly. So we're going to take the whole chapter, and as I read through it, as you follow through uh, in your Bibles or on your phones or whatever you're looking at, um, to look for those why statements. They're important for us to understand. So um, second chapter, beginning in the first verse, Paul writes, but as for you, again speaking to Titus, as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and perseverance. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, uh, that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so the word of God may not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible in all things to show yourself an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach in order that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing good faith that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Father, it is our, our direction. It's our instruction, it's nourishment for our very soul, Lord. And so we pray as we look to it this morning that we would simply hear from you, Lord. Father, our need is to hear from you. So we ask you would speak to our hearts and minds this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So what I would like to do this morning um, is first go over the passage as a whole. Just take a survey of the passage. Frankly, a lot of what is in this passage is pretty self-explanatory. Like when he tells the slaves, don't steal. I mean, that's pretty straightforward. That doesn't require a whole lot of explanation. Um, So take a little more time to touch on the points that may not be as clear. Um, But then look at the why reasons. Take some time to go back through the passage again with a little more focus and note why Paul says what he does and why the why parts are so important. So uh, let's just go ahead and get right into that. First of all, the passage itself, he says, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Doctrine has kind of a, that's a word that doesn't resonate well with a lot of people. 
we kind of recoil from that. Even scripture warns us against the doctrines and teachings of men. So a lot of us, just, you know, we don't like that idea. All the word means is teaching. It's not even a different word. It's just the same word. It just means teaching. It's what that body of teaching that we live by, that we've incorporated, that is the foundation of our life. And so everybody's got one. I mean, if, if you don't like the word, too bad, because you got one. All right? We all have that worldview, if you want to call it that. That, that personal values, whatever it is that's been formed in your inner being, and it isn't necessarily the one you articulate. A lot of people articulate a doctrine and they go live some other way, right? No, it's the one that actually guides you. It's the one that works in here and down here, right? You know, the atheists, they have a highly formed doctrine, and it influences how they live. The agnostic has a highly formed doctrine, and it guides how they live. So we ha all have one. And what Paul is saying in this passage is, first of all, you should be conscious of it. You should know what are the principles by which you live, and be careful in the formation of them, because as Proverbs tell us, as a man thinks, so he is, the doctrine that we allow to form in our innermost being will guide our lives. It will have an effect. So Paul says, be careful, Titus, in your teaching that it establishes sound or healthy doctrine, right? And the first group he speaks to is the older men. First question is, well, how old is that? Well, I think the best way to define that is to say old enough to be an example to others, right? To the older men, he says, be dignified. Live a life that's worthy of respect. That's, that's pretty straightforward. That one's not too difficult for us. One thing I would notice as we go through this list, if you'll note, most of them are like universals. Like he tells the older men to be dignified, right? Does that mean everybody else should be undignified? No, I think that's one of the things about this list that really strikes me, is almost all of these are, in effect, universals. And I think the way they're broken down the way they are probably reflects the particular or unique challenges that were involved in Crete. And so Paul breaks them up or stratifies them, if you will, according to the need at hand, right? When he gets to older women, he goes into a little more detail. Again, old enough that they should be an example, right? And he says not to be, and again, I'm not going to touch on all the points, just the one that I think um, maybe need a little explanation, not malicious gossip. Now, if, if you know me well at all, this is one of my soapboxes. I don't like gossip, right? Fortunately for this morning's purpose, this is not the normative word for gossip, so I'm not justified in downloading all of my emotive feelings about gossip. I will just say this. This is the word that just specifically addresses malicious, slanderous, saying stuff about people because you want to do them hurt, right? Now, I know some people think, well, isn't that what gossip is? Oh, gossip is so much bigger than that. But we're not going there this morning because that's not where the text goes. Right? What Paul is saying is specifically, you don't want to let these ladies be out there doing stuff that's intended to hurt people. Now, why he narrows it the way he does, I would only suggest because... You ever been to Crete? Cretan ladies have a reputation just like Cretan men, so we're going to leave that at that, all right? Okay, the word talks about slander. We need to be so careful in what we say, right? He also comments with regard to the older women not to be enslaved to much wine. Now, there's another good example of how this is kind of a universal. He's not saying the older women should take it easy on the wine, but the rest of you all can have a good time. No, it's a universal, but it focuses in for reasons that we can only assume were unique to Crete, Wine it plays a huge role in Cretan culture. It has for a whole long time, so evidently in the first century, it was uniquely a problem for the older ladies. And Paul tells Titus, you need to address that, right? 
It's when he gets to the younger women that things really get interesting in verse 4. Um, he, actually, I'm getting ahead of myself. In verse 4, he's still talking about the older women, and he tells them to do what they do that they might encourage the younger women. And then he goes on to the instruction about the younger women. But the word encourage, I really want to speak to. Um, it's the word sufronizo, uh, sufronizo or sofronizo. And it's an interesting combination of words and it links the idea of wisdom, wise living, quite literally with the word that will come into English as the frontal lobe. Right? It means to, to encourage young women. Now, he's instructing the older women to live the way they do so that they will encourage younger women to think in a way that takes into consideration long-term consequences. And those of us who have raised children know what a unique and challenging task that is to deal, deal with a highly intelligent child capable of the most intricate scientific, mathematic, technological calculations and try to convince them to think about tomorrow. It, it's just it's a part of the brain that is you know, late to the dance, right? Thinking about those long-term consequences of life. That's one of the questions I'm going to ask God when I get the chance. How come you gave us the ability to do so many things before you gave us the brains to figure out the consequences of those actions? Right? But that's just the way it is. We have to deal with it. And Paul is telling the older women to live in such a way that they're capable of encouraging the younger women to get that long-term perspective. It's a highly, it's a completely practical idea, right? Then in verse 4, he continues talking about the example set by the older women to the younger women, and he and includes in examples of things that that would include being subject to the husband. And that's that word ipotasso, which we've talked about so many times around here. Right? It does not mean obey. Some translations will translate it as obey. That is not what the word means for reasons I will explain. It means to voluntarily step into a place of support. It means to voluntarily accept to yourself a place of supporting somebody else. It does not have the slightest connotation. In fact, it's quite distinct from the idea of obedience. The person that is functioning in this thing called ipotasso is voluntarily saying, I'm going to assume a role that supports, that encourages, that helps, that strengthens, that will provide whatever is necessary to make the other person strong, healthy, successful. Right? Not obedience. It's a point of support. So he's instructing the younger women to function in such a way that is supportive of their husband. And then in verse 5, again, continuation of verse 4, he again gives it his reason, and this is rather unique. He said that the word of God may not be dishonored. Now, one thing to note at this point, I'll comment more about this as we get farther into it, but the reasons that Paul gives for almost every one of these instructions is a reason that is, if I can use the word relativistic, it fits the context of Crete. Because something that is done that would dishonor the word in Crete might not dishonor the word somewhere else. I just want to kind of want to put that out there. We'll come back to that. The idea of living in such a way that the word of God is not dishonored 
would vary from cultural setting to cultural setting. We'll talk more about that, right? Verse seven and 6 and 7, Paul turns to the question of young men. Here he again uses this word, symphronel, which means to start thinking long-term, right? Get in your head, that rational part of your head, that actions have consequences, and start acting with wisdom. Think long-term. Think about the consequences of your behavior. To be sensible. The mind toward wholeness, another way to put that. To be an example, which is to say, to be very deliberate in behavior. And then he adds this to the young men, that our actions and our words would, would be an example of purity in doctrine. Well, what does it mean to have purity in doctrine? Well, that simply means that those ideas and thoughts, those guidelines, the personal value system, whatever you want to call it that resides here and here, that guides our conduct, would be characterized by purity. And what that means is not polluted by other influences. You know, all of us are torn in so many different directions. And I think, when you're, I think when you're young, it, it's certainly as true, perhaps even more true. It is so essential that as we grow and as we develop, which you might call your own personal doctrine, because again, we all have one, to develop one which is a, a congruous whole. It's guided by one overriding principle. It's guided by one central thought. You try to establish, if we can say, a life doctrine that's influenced by, you know, 40% Christianity and 20% cultural norms, 30% uh, by the last movie that I watched, that's, that's not pure. That's diluted. That's confused. I know those percentages didn't add up. I made them up as I was going. Um, but you get the point, right? A doctrine that is whole, a doctrine that is sound, right? Sound in speech, speech that cannot be faulted. And here's another reason why. In order that the opponent may be, put, may be put to shame. There were those in Crete that opposed them. Paul instructs Titus to instruct young men in such a way that their lives would put those who oppose them, oppose the church, oppose the gospel, to shame. Right? We'll come back to that in just a moment. Right? Verses 9 and 10, Paul speaks to Titus on the subject of slaves. Here's where it gets really interesting because he tells slaves to be subject. He doesn't tell the slaves to obey. Again, it's that word hipotasso. does not mean obey. It means to be voluntarily in a place of support. Well, why in the world would you tell a slave who already has to obey, by law has no choice in the matter, who if he or she does not obey is subject to serious penalty, why would you tell them to step into a place of voluntary support? They already have to obey. Well, the answer is found way back in the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus told his listeners, if a man forces you to go one mile, go with him too. What does that mean? That means when, as Christians, we voluntarily go beyond what we have to do. When as believers, we do more than the law requires us to do. We may even go farther than customs or norms or expectations. We make a difference. We stand out. So Paul's telling the slave, even as a slave, you have the opportunity by going above and beyond what you're called to do to stand out from the pack, stand out from the crowd, and make a difference in the life of everyone that sees you. He goes on to say things like, do not steal. That's pretty obvious. You know, I said these are universals. 
often been pointed out, and I think it's perfectly true and reasonable, um, that all of us are in a place um, where to be mindful of just how much at our disposal is not ultimately ours, our time, especially when we're on the clock, our, our, our assets, being mindful of where those assets ultimately come from. We need to show wisdom. We need to show discretion in the way we act with regards to things which ultimately are really not ours. They really belong to someone else. Because a violation of an asset, whether it be our time or a commitment, is a violation of trust. And how do you listen to, how do you believe somebody you can't trust? That, that's pretty much, again, a kind of a quick summary of, of the to-do list or the don't-do list. It's a pretty good list. It's pretty much universal, I think. Um, but the why, that's what I really want to talk about, the why. I asked you to pay attention to the why statements because they're significant. Verse 4, Paul commenting to the older woman. We already talked about this. The why was to instill in younger women a mind, an attitude that would cause the younger women to follow along to think long-term, to be motivated by wholeness, wellness, and goodness. The instructions to younger women, yes, they're related to domestic concerns, the family and the home. You know, normally in the church, and here's where I think it gets, these wives become really, really critical for us. Normally in the church, when we start talking about the home and the family, especially in connection with, with, with wives and mothers, we do a mental shift. And we start talking about it. I, I can't begin to tell you how many times I've heard this. We start talking about the home in terms of a God-ordained order. I, I have heard that so many times. That the home must be, the relationships in the home, the work in the home, the jobs in the home, the response, are all defined by this God-ordained order. And what I want you to notice is, that's nowhere here. Nowhere in any of these instructions, any of them, does Paul reference that. Everything Paul references here is on a completely different set of priorities, a completely different set of reasons and purposes. Everything Paul says here is not about a divinely created order, but about the way our conduct speaks of the gospel. We said way back in chapter 1, we said way back in chapter 1, this was all about the manifestation of Christ's character in us and through us, both individually and corporately as the church. And everything in this passage is about that topic, about living our lives in such a way that those outside the faith are drawn to the faith. Let me go a little farther. I think you'll see what I'm talking about. Uh, talking to the young men, he says, to be in regard to their speaking, that which is above reproach, so the enemy will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about it. He says, in the manner of their speech, young men, and in their conduct, young men, should not do a single thing that provides a basis for the unbeliever to bring accusation against them. You know how those Christians are. Wow. That's one we don't want to hear. You know how those Christians conduct themselves. We don't want to hear that. And this is real. I went to a Christian college. I can tell you about young Christian men. There's a lot of things that could be said that shouldn't be said. 
and it's not confined to Christian colleges. That's just a really good Petri dish. Our conduct should only speak well of the gospel. Regarding the slaves, and this I think is perhaps the most significant one, Paul's motivation to the slave in verse 10, let's read verse 10 again, not pilfering, but showing good faith that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. The first job of a slave, of a Christian slave, was to adorn the gospel. What does that mean? Well, what does the word adorn mean? The word appears ten times in Scripture. It's translated various ways. Nine of the ten times, it specifically refers to the visual appearance of something. The question of how does it look? You know, ultimately, ultimately, the precepts of Christianity would eradicate slavery. I think I can safely say in every culture in which it was given time to do that. The precepts of Christianity eradicated slavery in every culture. But that wasn't the goal. The goal of the precepts of our faith is to liberate each and every person from the slavery of sin and to bring to salvation. And that can only happen if people are drawn to the gospel. Paul's first priority to the slave was conduct yourself in a way that when the master looks over a field of slaves, he sees one slave acting in such a way that he is drawn to that slave. There's something about that man or that woman that is different. For those of us that have employers, as employers look at us, there should be something about us that when an employer looks at us, they're drawn to us, and not just because we're making them an extra buck. But the conduct of our lives will draw... That is what drew me to faith. I was drawn to faith by a man and a woman whose lives had, a, had something about it that made me say, I want to be like them. Their lives, their conduct adorned the gospel, made the gospel attractive. In each case, the reason Paul gives has something to do with the health, the well-being of the family, and the public perception and the reputation of both the individual believer and the church of the gospel. He makes no mention at all of any kind of a divine order. No, he talks about the public perception of the gospel. It's really a lot like what he said over in the Corinthian letters, and they were even more messed up, if you recall. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1 through 4. For Paul writes this, speaking of his goal for the Corinthians, and working together with him, that is Christ, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. At the acceptable time, I listened to you. On the day of salvation, I helped you. Here he's quoting the Old Testament. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And then he goes on to say, giving no cause for offense in anything, so the ministry may not be discredited but in everything commending ourselves as servants of God. Same principle here as in Corinth. Living in such a way that people are drawn to the gospel. Paul is saying that the way we conduct ourselves is, as viewed by the world is of a vital concern. As preachers, we're used to saying, and I know I've said it myself, that we do not as Christians conform to our culture. That's half true. It's a good, solid 50% true. We do not conform to our culture in that culture doesn't dictate truth to us. Culture doesn't dictate value to us. Our doctrine, 
whether we're talking about the formal doctrine of the church or the one that we just live by every day, must be formed by the truths of God's word. There's nothing else to base it on. And I, to be a Christian and not base my, my life on scripture leaves me with what? My instinct? I talked about that last week. I know this guy too well. Bad idea. I've got to have something that I can look to that speaks with authority, and that's his word. So I base my life doctrine on the truths of Scripture. But when I translate that into daily behavior, I have to take into consideration the environment I'm in. Because I can do some things in one culture that adorn the gospel that might be highly offensive in another. And it isn't interesting, in that Corinthian passage, Paul links this challenge of living our lives in such a way that we adorn the gospel. Paul links this challenge with grace, which is the exact same thing he does here. Let's look at the rest of the chapter. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to live go- ungodly, to live, or rather, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteousness, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Jesus Christ, Savior Jesus Christ. We are dependent, I mean, I can read the text. I can read the text and I can come up with a pretty good understanding of how I'm supposed to live. But how do I translate that into my day-to-day? I am wholly dependent on the grace of God for that one. Because that question gets way too complicated for me. So yeah, I don't let culture define truth. Word of God defines truth for me. But how I manifest that in my daily, in my daily walk, I am wholly dependent on the gracious teaching, instruction, and guidance of the Holy Spirit of God. Because that is a challenge I'm not up to. When Joyce and I, I think all of you that have observed my wife and I in our interactions know that we live, we have a marriage based on equality, full equality, and that is expressed openly. If I say something and my wife doesn't agree with me, she tells me, it doesn't matter if there's people around or not. You all get to be part of the the John and Joyce dynamic, and that's very deliberate on our part. It's one of the things that our life is so exciting, right? Yeah. But when we were in Greece, now if we were young, younger Greeks, that was cool. They love that, right? But we get around a bunch of older Greeks, like old Greek pastors. I don't recall a single incident where she ever disagreed with me, at least not then. I heard about when I got home. But she, and I, we, I don't recall ever talking about it. I don't ever remember. I'm sure I didn't say, hey, we're around old Greeks, but, you know, <clears throat> no. But there was a wisdom that I am absolutely confident, you know, God downloaded into her in that moment that said, this is the time when I'm going to let John say something wrong and not say anything about it. Because if she had, first of all, she would have lost all credibility in that, in that group. In that group of older Greeks, especially older Greek pastors, right? She would have been labeled, right? And if I did not instantly rebuke her, which was not going to happen, right? If I did not instantly rebuke her, I would have been labeled. And we would have collectively lost any influence with that entire group of people who we were there to minister to and serve, right? So her application of biblical equality in that moment was to put a timer on it. 
John and I will talk about this later. Now, that's a pretty specific example. I mean, it's not something that's like a universal. No, it can't be a universal. It's one culture in one place in one time. We live in a culture, however, that puts just as stern demands on us in a, in a myriad of ways. It couldn't begin to enumerate all the ways that we come into contact with us. But I think it's safe to say that virtually every day, if we are engaging with people, not work by yourself and never talk to anybody, it's not a big deal. But if you're engaging people on a day-to-day -day basis and you're known to be a believer, which I hope you are, then the simple truth that we have a dependence on the grace of God to allow us to take what we know to be true by his word and express it in a way that has relevance in the culture that we're in. And that is why the whys of these passages are so important. They illustrate that so powerfully. Paul says in verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself up for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Shorthand, it's all dependent on him. It, we are entirely dependent on him. When Joyce and I, Pastor Joyce and I talk about the need for a prayer life, this is what we're talking about. It's not so we can check a box and say we prayed this morning. We talk about the need to be students of Scripture, know our word, know what we're talking about. Not so you can check a box. When we talk about being in fellowship with one another, being engaged with the body of believers. This is what we're talking about. It's not so you can check a box. It's because that is how we put ourselves in a position that we can be the channels of God's grace that allows us to transition from what we know and believe to how we make that real in the lives of those around us. And that is why we're here. To make Christ known in the lives of those around us. I can't think of any other reason to be here. Otherwise, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to leave. I'm ready to be with him. I'm ready to put off this body of death that Paul talks about. I can't think of any other reason to be here than to make Christ known. Father, I thank you for your word, Lord. And sometimes, Father, we read things in your word, and they, they kind of set us back like, oh, I don't know, Father. That kind of flies in the face of what I think or what I know or what I believe. Um, and I think that's a good sign, Lord, because it, it helps us to know that we're engaging with his word. Father, I really appreciate, Lord, those who um, sometimes before a Sunday or after a Sunday contact me and say, Pastor, you said this, but what about this? Or, Pastor, have you considered this? Or, I really appreciate that, Lord, because that tells me, Lord, that we have, we have people in our, in, our, in our fellowship here who are engaging with the Word of God, processing, Lord, what, what I believe, Father, to be the truth you're making known to us. You want us to be a people who walk in full consistency with your Word and at the same moment, Father, are able to make the adjustments and the adaptations to express your word in a culture that is so, many cases, diametrically opposed to everything that you are, everything that we should be. Lord, we need you. We sang this morning, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. Father, that is so true. But Father, we are so grateful that as great as our need for you is, even greater is your provision for us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, let's stand and worship him.